Welcome to Chapel Under the Oaks. Today is January 31st, 2021, and it's the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. Thank you for joining us. Our key scripture for today is 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I'm reading from the Living Bible Translation. When someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He is not the same anymore. A new life has begun. Our full scripture reading comes from the Gospels of Luke, Matthew, and John, also from the Living Bible Translation. First, from Luke 5, 1 through 11. One day, as he was preaching on the shore of Lake Gennesaret, great Crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats standing at the water's edge while the fishermen washed their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push out a little into the water so that he could sit in the boat and speak to the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets and you will catch a lot of fish. Sir, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, we'll try it again. And this time their nets were so full that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh, sir, please leave us. I'm too much of a sinner for you to have around. For he was awestruck by the size of their catch, as were the others with him, and his partners too, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus replied, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for the souls of men. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and went with him. Next, from Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately after this, Jesus told his disciples to get into their boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he stayed to get the people started home. Then afterwards, he went up into the hills to pray. Night fell, and out on the lake, the disciples were in trouble, for the wind had risen and they were fighting heavy seas. About four o'clock in the morning, Jesus came to them walking on the water. They screamed in terror, for they thought he was a ghost. But Jesus immediately spoke to them, reassuring them, Don't be afraid, he said. Then Peter called to him, Sir, if it is really you, tell me to come over to you, walking on the water. All right, the Lord said, come along. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he looked around at the high waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Instantly, Jesus reached out his hand and rescued him. Oh, man of little faith, Jesus said, why did you doubt me? And when they had climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. The others sat there awestruck. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. And finally, from the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 19 and 26 through 30. 
Jesus left Judea and returned to the province of Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way, and around noon, as he approached the village of Sychar, he came to Jacob's well, located on the parcel of ground Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jesus was tired from the long walk in the hot sun and sat wearily beside the well. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus asked her for a drink. He was alone at the time, as his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised that a Jew would ask a despised Samaritan for anything. Usually, they wouldn't even speak to them. And she remarked about this to Jesus. He replied, If you only knew what a wonderful gift God has for you and who I am, you would ask me for some living water. But you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this is a very deep well. Where would you get this living water? And besides, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? How can you offer better water than this, which he and his sons and cattle enjoyed? Jesus replied that people soon become thirsty again after drinking this water. But the water I give them, he said, becomes a perpetual spring within them, watering them forever with eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me some of that water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and won't have to make this long trip out here every day. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. But I'm not married, the woman replied. All too true, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. Sir, the woman said, you, you must be a prophet. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples arrived. They were surprised to find him talking to a woman, but none of them asked him why or what they had been discussing. Then the woman left her water pot beside the well and went back to the village and told everyone, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. now the sermon for today. Please pray with me. Almighty God, make me an instrument of your salvation and sanctification for these precious people that you've entrusted to me today through this podcast, that by my life and teaching, I may set forth your true and living word. Amen. It's no secret that Keith and I are missing our long ocean cruises. We love the water, the ships, the ports of call, the opportunities to meet new people, the captive audience for ministry and teaching, the chance to get away and renew ourselves as we share God's message of love and grace and hope with others. Over the past 25 years, we've watched cruising evolve into a big business. And with that evolution has come several waves of rebranding as the cruise lines have fought for their share of cruisers. 
their taglines or slogans are designed to attract a certain niche of the market. For example, Crystal Cruises, one of the most high-end lines, uses the tagline, where luxury is personal. Azamara, which prides itself on having more overnights in ports, uses the line, stay longer, experience more. Carnival Cruises, which is typically considered the party ship, uses an appropriate tagline, fun for all. And then there are some that play directly into the world's craving for control, for power, for self-determination. For example, Oceania's tagline promises, your world, your way. I can hear the cruise ship band playing my least favorite song, My Way, in the background. No matter how the cruise lines lure you in, no matter how big or small, old or new, luxurious or basic the ship is, we are all on the same ocean, part of God's amazing creation and a source of life to millions of creatures, including humans. In fact, water and the importance of water is a theme throughout the Bible, but especially in Jesus's ministry. As we talked last week, when it was raining outside, Water is necessary for us to live. The rain is God's gift to us, for it gives and renews life. In the second verse of Genesis, we encounter water for the first time. We read, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. From then on, the sea, the ocean, appears primarily in precarious circumstances. Remember Noah's 150 days on the sea until the ark finally came to rest on Mount Ararat and the dove returned with an olive branch. Think of Jonah's harrowing journey as he tried to escape God's calling to go to Nineveh. He ended up in the Mediterranean Sea in the belly of the whale. Bodies of water in the Bible, for the most part, take on the character of an antagonist in the story, something to be overcome something to be dealt with. The Israelites lost their faith and succumbed to fear at the shore of the Red Sea until what? Exactly, God parted the waters so they did not have to swim or even wade across. Their feet stayed only on dry land. Later, when the Israelites under Joshua needed to cross the Jordan River to take the city of Jericho, God parted the waters again. And again, the Israelites walked across. Are you sensing a theme here? Perhaps that the Jewish people avoid the water? I mean, seriously, how many Jewish sailors have you ever heard of? They are craftsmen, businessmen, scholars, lawyers, bankers, doctors, but not seafarers. This is not a profession that the Jewish people have traditionally been drawn to. And there's a reason for this. For the Jewish people, large bodies of water, seas, lakes, oceans, represented one thing, chaos. The Hebrew scriptures affirmed for them that the sea was fraught with danger. Watery depths, whales, sea monsters, the Leviathan. The seas were not a place of peace, of shalom. That's why in Revelation 21, when the new creation, the ultimate heaven, where we will live with God forever, is described, a key piece is that there will, quote, be no sea. 
Now, for those of us who love cruising and sailing on the world's oceans, that could be seen as just a minor disappointment. But for the Jewish people, for whom Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, it's great news. Even in first century Palestine, in the time of Jesus, Jews stayed as far away from water as they could. And it's really not much different today. If you visit the Sea of Galilee today, you will find that there is only one city, Tiberias, on the western shore that has hotels and resorts. The rest of the shoreline looks pretty much like it has for millennia. The Jewish people have no interest in building close to the water. But as we said earlier, water represents more than chaos in God's story. Water is life-giving, life-sustaining, and we see examples of that throughout the scriptures as well. Jacob built wells throughout Canaan to provide water to keep his flocks and family alive. Baby Moses is placed in a tiny ark in the Nile River to keep him safe from Pharaoh's henchmen. As they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, the Israelites subsist on manna, quail, and water. Elijah's great moment on Mount Carmel when he defeats the prophets of Baal, why it comes about because of a great drought on the land and God recognizes his faithfulness with torrents of welcome rain. For while the Israelites, the Jews, may have avoided large bodies of water, they understood and appreciated the life-giving properties of rain. Moses warned them about this as he prepared them for the promised land. In Deuteronomy 10, 10 through 11, we read his words, the land you are about to enter and possess is definitely not like the land of Egypt where you came from, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it by hand like a vegetable garden. No, the land you are entering to possess is a land of hills and valleys where your drinking water will be rain from heaven. In other words, in Egypt, the water supply was the Nile. It flooded annually to provide the water needed to grow crops in the fertile Nile Valley. Not so in Canaan. There, the Israelites would be solely dependent on God for their water source. God would send the rain. They should be good stewards of it. The Israelites quickly learned that they had to plan ahead. They could expect no rain the first seven months of the year. That's April through October for us. This is still the case in Israel. And so they harnessed the power of underground springs. They dug wells. They stored water in cisterns. And when those construction-mad Romans came, they built aqueducts to move water from one place to another. So the Jews had kind of a love-hate relationship with water. They appreciated it probably much more than we do as we turn on the faucet and let gallons go down the drain without thinking. They cherished every drop of its life-giving force, and they thanked God for it. They considered rain one of Yahweh's greatest blessings. But they also feared it, especially in great quantities, like the Sea of Galilee, which is the largest lake in Israel, about the size of Washington, D.C., and yet so much of Jesus' ministry occurs in and around the Sea of Galilee. Our three scriptures today are just a few examples of Jesus's ministry of water. Let's look at them a bit more closely. The first is the familiar story of Jesus calling his first disciples, as Luke reports it. This happens, of course, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Oh wait, 
we read earlier that Jesus was on the shore of Lake Gennesaret. That's right. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. Here, Jesus has been teaching along the shore and the crowds are pressing closer and closer. He sees a local fisherman, Simon, with his boat on the shore where he is cleaning up from a night of fishing. Jesus asks him if he can sit in his boat to speak to the crowds. So Simon takes Jesus a very short distance from the shore and Jesus finishes his teaching from the boat. Then Jesus tells Simon, the fisherman, to go out to the deeper part of the lake and see if he can catch some fish. Simon, like a lot of us when Jesus tells us to do something, thinks that he knows better. I mean, Simon is the fisherman after all. And so he says in 21st century lingo, oh, been there, done that, but if you want me to do it again, whatever. And of course, when he follows Jesus's instructions, the nets come up so full, they are tearing apart from the weight. Simon calls to his partners to come and help, and they fill up a second boat. Simon, who we later know will become the impetuous, passionate Peter, knows something important has happened and tells Jesus that Jesus needs to hang around with a holier crowd than his crew. <laughs> Can't you imagine that Jesus smiled and maybe chuckled then? He knew what he had in store for Peter, that this man would become the foundation of his church. But Jesus just says, as he would so many times throughout his ministry, don't be afraid. Come with me and cast your nets for lost souls. Knowing what we now know about the Jewish love-hate relationship with water, this whole story has deeper meaning. The fact that the people were crowding so close to the lake that Jesus had to go out in a boat tells us that they were desperate to hear what he had to say. They overcame their fear of the water to be close to him. And apparently, Simon and his partners had been fishing very close to shore where there were no fish. But of course they had. The Sea of Galilee was 85 feet at its deepest, and that was about 80 feet too deep for these Galileans. This event is often called the miraculous catch of fish. But it might have been that Jesus just knew where the fish were, as the Creator God would surely know. Jesus also knew these very practical, hard-working fishermen needed a sign, and so he gave them one. What began with an everyday encounter suddenly became much more, a miraculous catch of fish. But to get to the fish, the fishermen were going to have to trust this young rabbi, Jesus. They would have to put faith over fear and paddle out into the deep waters. And then the last verse. We read, and as soon as they landed, they left everything and went with him. Now, if you just think of Peter, of Simon, as a small-time fisherman, you might mistakenly think that, hey, leaving that behind was no big deal. But no, this passage tells us that Simon had at least two partners, James and John, and at least two boats. He was a small business owner, and he walked away from it because Jesus offered him something new. Jesus, God, was doing a new thing. And they may have been just fishermen, but their hearts told them they should be a part of it. And then we read another familiar story of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus walked on the water and Peter tried to. 
This passage begins with the words, immediately after this. After what, we ask? We need to know the context. The what is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men, plus many more women and children, on the eastern shore of the lake. And that event occurred just after Jesus had learned of the beheading of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod Antipas. Jesus had wanted to retire to a quiet place to be with his father in prayer after this news, but the crowds demanded his attention. And so he taught them and fed them. Then as night fell, he finally had his chance to be alone. But in order to accomplish that, he sent the disciples ahead of him in a boat at night to the other side of the lake, across the deepest part, where severe squalls could develop within minutes with swells of waves up to 20 feet high, where people could die and never be found. Knowing what we know about their fear of the water, do you think they wanted to go? Absolutely not, but they did, and their worst fears were realized. The scriptures tell us that the disciples were in trouble, for the wind had risen and they were fighting heavy seas. Apparently, this went on through the night, because it's not until about 4 a.m. when Jesus leaves his time of prayer and comes to them, walking across the water. Now, this would have been a frightening sight for most of us, I believe, but especially so for these fear-wrecked disciples. Here, after Jesus assures them that the great I am is coming to them, Peter asks if he can walk to Jesus. Once again, I imagine Jesus smiling a bit sadly to himself as he already knows how this is going to go. He knows that Peter is not ready for this leap of faith, but like he does with us, he allows him to attempt to fail and then to learn from that experience. And so Peter begins walking to Jesus. And then the scriptures tell us that he, quote, looked around at the high waves. Hmm. If Peter looked around at the high waves, that meant he was not looking at Jesus. And he began to drown, only to be lifted from the angry waves by the hand of God. Keeping our eyes on Jesus keeps us safe, connected, one with our Savior. And once again, the last verse says it all. The others, the disciples who had been watching this scene unfold, sat there awestruck. And then they, not Peter, proclaim, you really are the Son of God. Now, perhaps Peter was still getting water pumped out of his lungs or had passed out in shock, but it's significant to me that it was the other disciples who were changed by this event. They were not the ones who stepped out in faith and then took their eyes off Jesus, but they were witnesses to it. Again, Jesus had given them all a sign and they learned from it. They were changed. Their hearts took a new turn toward Jesus. And finally, our third passage for today. Here we shift in our love-hate relationship with water. In this scene, water is not the chaotic, frightening obstacle to be dealt with and overcome. Water is the life-giving blessing that comes only from God. And a far from perfect Samaritan woman, the most unlikely of subjects, receives a promise and a future she could never have imagined. 
It's a normal day for this woman in the Samaritan village of Sikar, and she is doing an everyday task, going to the well for water. But notice the details here. It's around noon, John tells us, and there is no one else around. That's because the rest of the women of the village came first thing in the morning to the well, when it was cooler, when they could share all the news of their little village with each other as they worked. But this woman came alone around noon, when she would not be ignored by the other women or, worse yet, whispered about in groups of twos and threes, and we soon learn why that is. It's hot. Jesus is tired, and she finds him sitting at the well. She goes about her business as speaking to a rabbi such as Jesus would be the last thing she would do. She wasn't the smartest Samaritan on the block, but she knew that much. And then the most unexpected thing happens. Jesus speaks to her and asks for a drink. She can't help but remind him that he isn't supposed to speak to the likes of her, but Jesus, always on mission, always loving, smiles and with a twinkle in his eye tells her that if she knew who he was, she would ask him for some living water. She can't imagine what he's talking about, And Jesus explains that his water will quench her thirst forever with eternal life. Half joking, she asked him to give her that water. Then she would never have to come back to this well again. Jesus can tell she needs a sign too. She needs something to help her understand that his offer is far from a joke. And so he tells her to get her husband, knowing full well she has none at the moment, but has had five in the past. And now we know why she comes to the well at noon. Even in Samaria, a land where the Jewish religion was contaminated by pagan doctrine and practices centuries earlier, a woman who's been married five times and now lives with a man she's not married to, well, even in Samaria, that would be a reason to be excluded from polite society. And when Jesus tells her he knows this, when he gives her this very personal sign meant just for her, for the first time, she takes him seriously. She wonders if he is a prophet. And he reveals his identity as the Messiah. Now this is huge for the woman and for Jesus. Jesus does not drop the M word easily, especially this early in his ministry. But here he trusts the Samaritan woman with this information. And she runs into town telling everyone she meets that she has met the Messiah. And here is the most astonishing part. In the last verse we read, So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This woman who left her home and walked to the well like any other day, shunned by the villagers, ashamed to show her face around the other women, ridden with guilt, a woman with no credibility. This woman comes back from the well, proclaiming she has seen the Messiah, and they believe her. Now, doesn't that strike you as miraculous? And there can be only one explanation. She had been changed, transformed. 
She encountered Jesus, and she did not come back the same woman. God had done something new. We began today talking about some of the taglines the cruise ship industry uses to make a vacation sound like more than a vacation. My favorite, hands down, comes from our favorite cruise line. We've been on many different lines over the years, but we keep coming back to Princess, especially for our ministry. They are welcoming and accommodating to Bible study and worship services. And what is Princess's tagline? Come back new. Now, I'm pretty sure that the marketing team that came up with that did not consider its theological undertones, but they're definitely there. For what is a better description of the result of an encounter with Jesus than coming back new? From wherever we are, recovering from a long night of fishing, in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, in a Samaritan village excluded from polite society, or living daily in 2021 with guilt, hopelessness, or fear. Once we encounter Jesus, we are never the same. Whether we witness miraculous signs or everyday wonders, we are transformed, not just modified or adjusted or repaired, we are made into something completely different. God is doing a new thing in us. As Paul reminds us in our key scripture for today, when someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. This epiphany season, as you reflect on the signs and wonders God puts in your path, be ready for this encounter. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This epiphany season, experience Jesus and come back new. Amen. Thank you.